Please open your copies of God's Word to the book of Romans chapter 9. We're going to pick up today in Romans chapter 9 beginning at verse 30. What we're going to do is we're going to read through the rest of that chapter and on into chapter 10 verse 4. As uh, you turn there, I just remind you where we were last week. Paul's um, turned from um, who we are in Christ, um, who we are, what our identity is in Christ in chapter 8, on to asking a question uh, of Paul, um, and that is, where does Israel fit in with all of this, Paul? And, and he's uh, dealing with that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. With that introduction, Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. This is God's holy word. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And here ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it. Let's come before him and ask him that he would. Lord, we come before you asking for something spiritual. Lord, we don't want to sit here and just talk about your word and listen to your word as if it is just people talking about literature. This is your word, Lord, and you say that it will not go out from you void. Lord, you have set up preaching in your churches, and that is for a purpose to do a work in our hearts to speak to us. And so, Lord, we would ask for that miracle today. We would ask that as your word is preached, you would take it, that you would search our hearts and that you would tap us on the shoulder and say, this is for you. Lord, help us. Help us, we pray. We'd ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I'd like to start off Uh, this morning by telling you about one of your citizens. And this citizen of yours, he holds a surprising record. His name is Richard Phillips. And he holds the record for the longest known wrongful prison sentence in American history. He spent a staggering 46 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. 19 72, a Detroit jury convicted Phillips of murder based on the evidence provided by an alleged witness, and he was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Ironically, the witness in his case was the one who committed the murder. 
47 years later, the real murderer confessed to to the crime, which led to Philip's release. And now Richard Phillips holds the record for the longest serving inmate to win exoneration in the United States. What's exoneration? Exoneration means clearing someone from blame or wrongdoing. It's the official acknowledgement that a person has been found innocent. Similarly, our text is about people being declared innocent, being declared righteous. However, it's not about innocent people being declared not guilty. Instead, it's about guilty people who are declared innocent. It's about sinners being declared righteous. Our text is about righteousness. If you take a quick look, you'll spot the word used six times throughout. This passage teaches that righteousness and salvation is found through faith in Jesus rather than works-based righteousness. It teaches you to rest in the righteousness of Christ. And the Apostle Paul begins by pointing us to the insufficiency of works. That's our first heading, the insufficiency of works. In verse 30, Paul starts off with a question, doesn't he? He asks, what shall we say then? A modern way to phrase the same question might be, so, so what, what does this mean or, or what can we deduce from this? Paul's asking his audience to consider the implications of what he's just explained. And you might remember that at the beginning of chapter 9, the question Paul was answering is, has God's word failed? If not, why is the church made up largely of Gentile believers? Why aren't more Jews following Jesus? And well, Paul says to us, the word of God has not failed. And he goes on to defend that statement by explaining God's sovereign purpose in redemptive history. He does this by expounding upon God's election. He lets us peer behind the curtain, explaining that everything is going exactly according to God's plan. God has called both Jews and Gentiles to himself. And after discussing God's sovereign purpose, Paul then focuses on the human factors. In verse 30, he says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Well, maybe maybe we should start by asking, what is righteousness? Righteousness should primarily be understood as a moral or spiritual quality that reflects the perfect and just character of God. Righteousness entails being in a status or position of moral and spiritual correctness or integrity in the sight of God in accordance with his character and his standards. Well... Who's in need of righteousness? Everyone. Everyone needs righteousness. 
That's because all human beings are born with a sinful nature due to the fall of humanity in Adam. As a result, we are born sinners, separated from God and incapable of achieving righteousness on our own. No one can meet God's perfect standard of righteousness through their own efforts. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We learned that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, didn't we? There's a universal need for righteousness that extends to all individuals, regardless of their background or their personal attributes. I need I need righteousness. You need righteousness. We all, we all are in need of righteousness. Well, perhaps the next question then would be why? Why do we need righteousness? We need righteousness because God is perfectly just and holy and morally pure. His nature is without sin, and he expects the same moral purity from those who seek to have a relationship with him. God can't have fellowship with sin. He can't have fellowship with sin. Because of human sinfulness, there is a separation between humanity and God. And to bridge the gap and restore a right relationship with God, you need righteousness. Righteousness is the means by which human beings can stand justified and accepted in the presence of a holy and just God. And Paul says that it can be attained, doesn't he? He says that the Gentiles... uh, attained righteousness that is by faith. And then he continues in verse 31 saying, but that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel as a nation had pursued righteousness through their strict observance of the Mosaic law with great zeal and dedication But their approach was misguided in terms of understanding the law's ultimate purpose. They failed to recognize that the law was intended to point them to a deeper faith in God and his provision of righteousness, which is found in Christ. Israel pursued keeping the law with the aim of attaining righteousness, but they didn't succeed in attaining righteousness that they were looking for. That's because their pursuit of righteousness was grounded in a works-based approach where they believed that strict adherence to the law would make them righteous in the sight of God. Paul's argument is that they fell short of attaining righteousness through this method because they missed the fundamental truth that the law ultimately pointed to Christ. In essence, they pursued the law with the goal of achieving righteousness, but didn't realize that the law's purpose was to lead them to faith in Christ, who is the source of righteousness. 
righteousness isn't obtained through law-keeping, but through faith in Christ. Human works, no matter how sincere, no matter how sincere or zealous, cannot secure righteousness or salvation. Relying on your own efforts for righteousness and salvation is futile. As Christians, we realize that Christ is the source of righteousness. So why do we, why do we care then about uh, keeping the Ten Commandments? It's already been done for us in Christ. We keep the moral law out of love and reverence for the Lord. We believe that we're born again, right? You see, this confuses people who aren't born again because they think to themselves, why in the world would you care? It doesn't make sense. And so some of uh, these legal religions would say, no, 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 it can't be because if it were, no one would follow the law. No one would keep the law, so it couldn't be. But what they don't understand is with the converted heart from above, I want to follow the Lord. I've been changed. I've been changed and I have a supernatural affection for the Lord. I want to follow him. You know what the law is? It's a painting. It's a painting of who the Lord Jesus is on the inside, applied. I want to follow my Savior. The Ten Commandments reflects God's moral standards and obeying them in an expression of, is an expression of devotion and love for God. Jesus affirmed the importance of loving God with all one's heart and soul and mind, which naturally involves obeying the commandments. He said, if you love me, follow me. Keep my commandments. John 15. Well, after Paul establishes the insufficiency of human works in attaining righteousness, he turns our attention to the pivotal concept of the stumbling stone. That's our second heading, the stumbling stone. Every once in a while, my wife and I have the pleasure of having our youth group over for some board games and cards. Watch out, they're pretty good. You gotta be. <laughs> They've introduced me to the game of Euchre. I'll tell you what, boy, that game of Euchre is something else. And one day, I'm gonna figure it out. <laughs> I'm gonna figure it out, and then you guys are in trouble. <laughs> but for right now, I gotta keep my hands at the plow. And, uh, work out. One of the other games we play is Boggle. Do you guys remember Boggle? It's a word game. It's got 16, looks like little dice, and on each uh, edge of the dice, there's different letters, and they're in a case, and you, you shake it up, and then you pull off the lid, and you set the timer, and you've got three minutes to find as many words as you can find in there. Uh, I don't win it. I'm not winning at that game either, honestly. But but you, you do that three minutes, and then after it's up, you, you compare your lists with one another and point out which words you found and where you found them. And others point out words 
uh, that they found. And it always, it always amazes me that there were words, all kinds of words, right in front of my face, and I didn't see it. I didn't see them. Well, we see something similar happens to Israel. Their means of attaining righteousness was right there before them in the person and work of Jesus, and they didn't see it. He didn't see it. In verse 32, you'll see that Paul asks the question, why? Why didn't Israel attain righteousness? And then he gives the answer, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is citing Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16 regarding the stumbling stone. And in the New Testament, several passages such as 1 Peter 2.4-8 and Matthew 21.42-44 explicitly identify Jesus as the cornerstone and the stumbling stone. Paul cites Isaiah to illustrate that Jesus is that cornerstone. His point is that just as God laid this cornerstone in Zion for salvation, Jesus serves as a cornerstone and stumbling stone for humanity's righteousness and salvation. To those who have faith in Jesus, he is the cornerstone upon which their righteousness and salvation is built. However, for those who reject him, he becomes a stumbling stone, symbolizing their failure to grasp the importance of faith in Christ for righteousness instead of relying on their own works and their law-keeping. Paul explains that the Jews stumbled over Christ, who is the stumbling stone because they sought righteousness through the law, not realizing that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Well, you might ask, how is Christ the fulfillment of the law? Christ is the fulfillment of the law because he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law. The Son of God came down and he took to himself a human nature and Jesus' life and teaching fully aligned with the moral principles contained within the law, such as the Ten Commandments. He lived a sinless and righteous life, obeying every command of the law. And the ceremonial aspects of the law, including sacrifices and rituals, pointed symbolically to Christ as the ultimate sacrifice and high priest. His, that is Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, fulfilled the typology of the Old Testament sacrifices, offering complete atonement for sin and reconciliation to God. Therefore, the need for ongoing animal sacrifices and the temple rituals were fulfilled in Christ's atonement. 
Jesus fulfilled the legal aspects of the law by satisfying its requirements for justice and atonement. He bore the penalty of sin on behalf of his people, satisfying the law's demands for justice. And his resurrection from the dead demonstrated his victory over sin and death, vindicating his role as the ultimate man who would fulfill the law. As believers, we understand Jesus as, our corners, as the cornerstone of our faith, the very foundation upon which our, our righteousness and salvation stand. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. However, Paul reminds, uh, reminders are stark. Many hear the gospel and they tragically reject it, opting for their own paths of salvation rather than embracing the one true way. The human heart, the human heart, it seems, inclined towards a works-based righteousness approach by default. We must recognize that we cannot earn God's grace through religious rituals or good deeds. The gospel brings us the good news that Jesus lived a life that we could never live He was obedient perfectly to God's will. Then he bore the death that we deserved and he triumphed over our enemies, enemies that we could not overcome through his resurrection. Works-based salvation, in contrast, leads to eternal destruction. The Jews stumbled over Christ, rejecting the gospel in favor of attaining righteousness through their law-keeping. And as the text continues, Paul shifts our focus to the core of his message in the passage, righteousness by faith. That's our third heading, righteousness by faith. One thing I've learned about living in Indiana, is you guys are pretty serious about your colleges. I mean, there's like a real rivalry between IU and Purdue, right? And and when I see a couple of the same people from the same uh, group get together, there's a real camaraderie. Of course, um, everything is out of fun, but there is a real bond when you meet up with someone who graduated uh, from the same school as you did. And that's how we are, aren't we? We tend to have a real bond with people we're connected to in one way or another. Well, the apostle Paul is a Jew. He was a Jew, and he loved his people. He loved Israel. In chapter 10, verse 1, he writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul is expressing an intense burden for the salvation of Israel. This echoes his sentiment that he expressed at the beginning of Romans 9, where he expressed his great sorrow and unceasing anguish, he says, for his fellow Israelites who have not embraced Christ. 
His heart's desire and prayer for them is their salvation. Paul sets an example of the proper heartbrokenness and attitude that Christians should feel for the lost. He exhibits a sense of compassion and fervent prayer for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. You should emulate this attitude. You should feel a sense of urgency and compassion for the spiritual condition of those who have not experienced the saving grace of Christ. It reflects the heart of Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. The grace that we've experienced as Christians should compel us to pray for the salvation of others. Should compel us to take the gospel out to the lost and the unchurched around us. Paul's example highlights that believers should be burdened for the spiritual welfare of those who have yet to have an encounter with Jesus. We're called to intercede, to share the message of salvation and earnestly pray for the lost, demonstrating the same level of love and desire for the redemption, for their redemption as Paul exhibited for his fellow Israelites. In verse two, Paul adds to the list of reasons for Jewish unbelief. He writes, for I bear them witness that They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul doesn't question Jewish zeal for God. In fact, he explicitly acknowledges and bears witness to their zeal. He doesn't dispute their earnestness and their passion to pursue, in some sense, a relationship with the divine. But their zeal is misplaced. Their fervor is directed toward the law, its interpretation, its application, and their traditions rather than a comprehensive understanding and knowledge of God's redemptive plan. Their devotion to the law and its rituals had overshadowed their comprehension of God's grace and the necessity of faith in the Messiah. And when Paul mentions that the Jews' zeal is not according to knowledge, he's primarily referring to their lack of understanding and recognition of the message of the gospel, particularly concerning the role of the Messiah in the redemptive plan. They didn't, they they knew that sin was bad, but they didn't comprehend just how bad it was just how serious sin is, just how much God hates it and it cannot be in his presence. So much so they couldn't fathom that he would send his son down and that his son, sin was so serious that his son would have to be a sacrifice for sin. His son would have to take your place on the cross in order that you would have his righteousness. They didn't understand the role of the Messiah in God's redemptive plan. In verse three, Paul writes, 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews had failed to grasp and submit to the righteousness of God. They they didn't understand that God bestows Christ's righteousness upon believers as a gift. When a person embraces Christ for their salvation, God declares the believer as righteous, not because of their own merit, but because of their faith in Jesus. The concept of righteousness by faith is central. It's central to the gospel message. The Jews had been seeking to establish their own righteousness through their efforts, believing that they could merit right standing with God through strict adherence to the law. However, they failed to recognize that true righteousness as revealed in the gospel is a gift from God and then it's received with the open hands of faith. In verse four, Paul writes, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ's redemptive work fulfilled the demands of the law. The law couldn't provide righteousness or salvation. It reveals our need for a savior. The law sends us rushing. It sends us rushing to the cross and running for grace. It exposes our sins and blaring like a siren, it cries out for our desperate need of a savior whose righteousness alone can justify. Paul said that this is the great tragedy of the people he loved. They had missed it. They had missed it. They had sought the righteousness of God through their obedience to the law and had failed to see that the goal of the law is Christ and his righteousness. Paul's explanation of what had befallen his countrymen should be a powerful reminder to us. The Jews who pursued righteousness by works of the law stumbled, showing the error of works-based, of the works-based approach They had stumbled over Christ who was the stumbling stone because they sought righteousness through the law, not realizing that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Paul desperately wants to see Israel's salvation. So he made it clear that it is by confessing and believing in the Lord Jesus as both Savior and Lord that one attains righteousness and salvation. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Remember that this passage, it isn't just a historical account, but a timeless truth that applies to our lives. It's an invitation to examine our hearts and consider where we we might be relying on our own efforts for righteousness just as the Jews did in Paul's time. Our righteousness is not in what we do, but in whom we believe.
Believer, this is a reminder. Rest in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is the default of our hearts that we think that you smile upon us when we are good little boys and girls. (laughs) But Lord, we know that you, we know by your grace and your word that you smile upon us because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And we are grateful. Lord, we'd ask that you would emboss that upon our hearts, that you would help us to relax and to look to you and to follow you Lord, we'd ask that you would help us to focus on stirring our affections for you rather than analyzing your law under a microscope. We pray that you would stir in us, Lord, an affection for you that is genuine and sincere and that would produce in us lives that desire to follow you. We'd ask for your help, Lord. This is your work from beginning to end, so we cast ourselves into your hands asking that you would continue to do a work in us and that you would also give us a heart like you gave to the Apostle Paul, that our hearts would cry out for the lost around us. We'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.